was the night before the holiday, and all through the store, Ashley searched for a gift that wasn't a bore. Then what to her wondering eye should appear but lottery scratch tickets for everyone dear. The prize is how they twinkled to share these how merry. Her smile lit up. Shopping wasn't so scary. Spread a little holiday cheer with scratch tickets from the Connecticut Lottery. Use your game sense. Odds vary by and during games. Must be 18 or older to purchase. Lottery tickets are not suitable gifts for children under 18 years of age. CTLottery.org. Since we last convened in these hallowed halls, Jorge Soler won the World Series MVP. Seems like much longer than a week ago, doesn't it? He is just the second Cuban-born player ever to win it. Olvan Hernandez, Marlins pitcher, having put one on his trophy shelf above the fireplace on the mantle back during the 1997 World Series. Although, I don't find that to be totally legitimate because he got a massive contribution from umpire Eric Gregg. If you don't recall that, please dial up the highlights on the service of your choice, and you will see that Levon, in his biggest World Series performances, benefited from a strike zone the size of Montana. Jorge Soler was just hitting balls over buildings, as Casey would have put it, and had no such benefit. There have always been some good or great players from Cuba in the game, but not as many as there could have been, first for the obvious reason that no Cubans of color could play in the white majors through and really past 1947. Incredible players like Cristobal Torriente and Martin Dejigo were restricted to the Negro Leagues. When the color line fell, all too briefly, you had players such as Minnie Minoso and then in the next generation, or generations, Luis Tiant, Tony Perez, Tony Oliva, Tony Gonzalez, and more. They weren't all named Tony. Lots of Tonys. I could be remembering this wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Tony Oliva was born as Pedro and had to switch passports with his older brother to get into this country. So he became Tony, even though he did not grow up as Tony. And Tony Perez also might not have grown up as Tony, but that was just easier for Americans to say. Well, after that generation, and some of them like Perez and Oliva just got in at the end, the revolution in Cuba happened and diplomatic relations ceased for forever. Something like 80 players born in Cuba reached the majors during the 1950s and 60s, but just a handful, fewer than five, seriously, appeared in the 1970s and 1980s. Maybe the best player we in the United States did not get to see on a regular basis during this period was Omar Linares, El Nino, a third baseman with a wide batting stance and a very quick right-handed swing. He hit 404 home runs, albeit with an aluminum bat, and averaged 368 in a 20-season career that began in 1982. Now, at the other end of things, that's where I want to go to the earliest days of Cuban baseball players in America was pitcher Dolph Luque, a white Cuban who reached the majors in 1914. Adolfo Domingo de Guzman Luque, the pride of Havana. He was a right-handed pitcher, a hard thrower, who also threw a curveball with a sharp downward break, was pretty impossible to home run off of. To home run off of? He home run. He hit a... <laughs> Why is that not a verb after all this time? I home run, you home run, they home run, we home run, he home runs. And most importantly, because we're still waiting for this, at least in the American and National Leagues, she home runs. I want to live long enough to see she home runs. 
How did Aaron Judge do tonight, Bob? He home run. Chet? Is anyone still named Chet? Is anyone still named Bob, for that matter? I'm sure some of you know a Bob. I'm a little skeptical on Chet. I've talked before, I'm sure, about how the Reds largely haven't done starting pitchers. I know we've talked about how the Pirates haven't for a very long time, and they haven't done first baseman either. I'm sure we've talked about how the Reds mostly haven't. Well, Luque had the best season ever by a Reds starting pitcher. It was almost 100 years ago, which goes to show just how little starting pitching they've had. I mean, obviously, they've had some great teams, the Big Red Machine, the 1990 championship, which actually makes my point because that was a very bullpen-oriented team with Rob Dibble and Norm Charlton and Randy Myers in the back end of the pen. If you look up the 10 best seasons by starting pitchers in Reds post-1900 history, you get only two who have pitched in the last half century, Jose Rijo and Mario Soto. Rijo ranks fifth in career value. The top four in career value are Epirixi, Dolph Luque, Bucky Walters, and Noodles Hahn, the last of whom actually pitched more than 100 years in the past, and the rest have been gone between 75 and 95 years, so it's not like they're any more recent than old Noodles. He was called Noodles, by the by, because his mom used to have him bring his dad's lunch pail to him at the factory. This would have been, oh, about 1888 or 1889, and I guess the other factory workers would say, hey, Frankie, what you got for Pops today? And the answer was invariably, Noodles. So he became Noodles Han. And he was a very good pitcher. His arm was not at all pasta-like. It was al dente if it was. So even when the Reds have been good, they just haven't developed or held on to that many great starting pitchers. And that's fine. There's more than one way to boil this egg. As Baseball Reference figures it, the Reds have had three starting pitchers turned in seasons worth over nine wins above replacement. Now, this is probably a dumb standard for me to be using here because this is an uncommon thing for every team, and it's also the kind of achievement that not only requires a pitcher to be dominant, but to pitch a lot. And, of course, that, the idea of pitching a lot, is more or less extinct at this point, at least by the standards of the early days of the game but we can still put that number three such seasons in a kind of context. If you go back to the 16 teams that were around as of 1901, you'll see that the average number of those seasons is about six. The Red Sox, having had pitchers like Cy Young, Lefty Grove, Roger Clemens, and Pedro Martinez, have had 13 of them going right down to, if not the present day, then darn close to it, and the Orioles have had none, despite having had Jim Palmer and Mike Messina, or going further back, Urban Shocker and Bobo Newsom. You didn't think you'd get through an episode without a Bobo Newsom reference, did you? Dolph Luque had the best of those three nine or above win seasons. In fact, he was over 10 wins above replacement for the Reds. He went 27-8 and eight with a league-leading 1.93 ERA. He pitched six shutouts, also leading the league. And despite the fact that this was a lively ball year, he allowed just two home runs all season. One to Cardinals outfielder Ray Blades, another great name. One to the Giants' George Kelly. And we'll talk about high pockets a bit more in a few minutes. Dolph did some things that year we'll never see as present-day baseball fans. On June 19th, 
He pitched an 11-inning shutout against the Dodgers, beating Burley Grimes 1-0. Ole Stubblebeard, as they called him, went all the way to and lost on an unearned run. I imagine Grimes was pure fun to deal with after that. Doesn't the name Ole Stubblebeard suggest a Walter Brennan character to you? Maybe the way he was in Rio Bravo? What do you mean you haven't seen Rio Bravo? Go watch Rio Bravo, then come back. On July 17th, he started and won both ends of a doubleheader at Boston against the Braves. Maybe the Astros should have tried that against the Braves. He only pitched six innings in the opener, so I guess manager Pat Moran figured he'd be rested enough to go nine in the nightcap. Praising Luque for this performance, the Cincinnati Post said, In Señor Luque's native tongue, Spanish, there is a saying, Buen principio la mutad es hacha, meaning, well begun is only half done. Now, Google Translate tells me this is wrong and actually says, good start, the mutation is done, which I like better. And in German, it's, gut begonnen ist nur die Haft geschafft, which scares me. Dolph's mutation was that he liked high living and he had a bad temper. As the late Peter Bjarkman put it in Luke's Saber bio, if some of the tales surrounding Luque's outrageous public behavior might well be based more on fancy than fact, it is nonetheless common knowledge that he was indeed prone to expensive tastes and extravagant personal indulgences. He was a flagrant womanizer, a heavy drinker, a brash and often profane public figure, and a reckless gambler with a passion for the brutal cockfights that were then still legal in Havana. He squandered most of his baseball earnings on his lavish lifestyle, and thus died only one step ahead of the poorhouse. No disrespect meant at all, but sometimes words get me thinking, and I started to wonder, shouldn't that be one step out of the poorhouse instead of one step ahead of it? Because one step ahead would suggest that the poorhouse is chasing after you, and I think that's a different kind of movie than the one that we're experiencing right now. The consequence of Dolph Luque having that character is that he became the stereotypical, or was perceived as the stereotypical hot-blooded Latin, which is unfortunate, but during his lifetime, that's how Americans seemed to think in terms of ethnic stereotypes. Everyone could be boiled down to a few characteristics. Parenthetically, over the last couple of days, I've been reading Elmer Rice's 1929 Pulitzer Prize-winning drama Street Scene, you might have caught the film version from 1931 on Turner Classics sometimes, starring Sylvia Sidney. It's set entirely on the front stoop, or in and out of the windows of a New York apartment building somewhere around that time. Everyone in it is from a different country. It's like a little United Nations, and how do you know who's who and where they're from? Well, they're stereotypes. And thus, the Italian guy, he talks about the spicy meatballs, and the Jewish guy says, I gewalt, and talks about communism a lot. And the Swedish janitor, he used once to get a good night's sleep. And everyone but the extremely cliché Jewish characters are anti-Semites, which is heartwarming for me, let me tell you. So, let's not think of Dolph Luque that way. Better to say he was temperamental and happened to be from Cuba. And he did fight sometimes. There's one fight he was in that is part of every story about him, and the story of a rather prominent Hall of Famer he got into that fight with, but I think I'm going to save that for another day. Here's a hint. It was against the Giants during his big 1923 season, and the reason I'm going to save it 
is because while I was looking into that, I came across this story, which is never talked about, but is more instructive for us today. It was June 26, 1920, Reds versus Cardinals at home, at the Reds' home. Luke versus Spittenbilled Doke. It was the second game of a doubleheader. No, Dolph didn't start both of those on that particular day. The home plate umpire was the veteran umpire, the future Hall of Fame umpire, Bill Clem, and he was having a rough game. But before I get into the consequences of that rough game, let me just give you this disclaimer. I am going to censor a keyword in this story because it is not one that I feel like saying. It is one that is frowned upon today, and correctly so. You will know it when we come to it. I also want to tell you that back in 1920, when this story took place, it was covered in multiple newspapers, all of which printed that word right out in the open just a little over a hundred years ago. It was perfectly fine. Well, no, it wasn't perfectly fine. That's I'm, I'm giving away the moral a little bit. It was how you used it, the context of how you used it, and who you said it to and about that made it okay or not okay back then, and that is a massive kind of hypocrisy, and it's a hypocrisy that turns out, even if we don't say the word anymore, to last right down to the present day. And you'll see what I mean when I tell you the actual details of the story. Bill Clem called both games of the doubleheader. There were only two umpires on a crew back then, at least in the National League. I don't think he had too many problems in Game 1. Pop Haynes of the Cardinals pitched a shutout against Dutch Reuther. I'm not sure if it's Reuther or Reuther, but I think it was Reuther. R-U-E-T-H-E-R, later of the 1927 Yankees. He was on the Reds then. Good pitcher, not a long career. Pop Haynes shut him out. In the second game, though, Clem ran into trouble in the top of the sixth. There was a controversial play. St. Louis first baseman Jack Fournier was on third with one out, and when Luque fumbled a comebacker, he tried to score, but Luque found the handle and fired to Ivy Wingo, the catcher on the Reds. Don't you wish you had a job where you got to say, fired to Ivy Wingo? Clem made one of those calls that always gets umpires in trouble. You know the one. He went, ah, safe. Not only did Wingo argue so vehemently that Clem felt he had to eject him, but he was rewarded, Clem was, if that's the word, with a shower of glass bottles from the upper deck. Cardinals catcher Pickles Dillhofer actually came out on the field and defended Clem by catching some of those glass bottles in his bare hands. Dillhofer didn't have that long to live, as it turns out, but it's not because he was decapitated by a glass bottle dropped from a great height. Nothing like that. Clem was actually able to identify one of these brave bottle throwers, and when does this happen? There was a cop sitting in the next box, a detective, and... The guy was instantly arrested for disorderly conduct, and Clem pressed charges after the game. How many times in your life have you been driving down the highway, and you're observing the rules within a reasonable limit anyway, speed limit, literally, and you've seen a cop suddenly turn on his lights and pull someone over going 66 in a 65 mile per hour zone? Maybe that somebody was you, but... When someone passes you on the shoulder going 108 miles an hour because he's trying to make the Kessel run in less than 12 parts that... Well, let's be honest about it. He or she is not making the Kessel run. They just think they're more important than everyone else. 
and also invulnerable. And A, there's never a cop around, and B, you never see them plunge off a cliff at 108 miles an hour, which would probably be horrifying, but from my vantage point here, not on the road, not saying, oh, the humanity, it sounds rather satisfying. Never. You never see either. Well, this guy had the bad luck to be sitting adjacent to a cop. Other cops swarmed into the stands and headed off what was going to be or threatened to be a riot. Frustratingly for me and all this venting I'm doing to you now, the guy the detective hauled in was acquitted after he said that he could produce his wife and another woman. Sounds sketchy to me. What kind of arrangement do they have in their family? They would testify he hadn't thrown any bottles, and the judge actually said, you don't look like the kind of guy who would throw bottles. However, two other fans were fined $25 and court costs. One of the two, one Fred Ruse, pled guilty saying, I'm going to stop bottle throwing at the ballpark as I have stopped gambling there. Why did you throw the bottle? The judge asked Roos, and he answered everybody was doing it. And the judge said, yeah, that's not an excuse, Fred. Which, again, that's the courage of people who hide in crowds. So good for Bill Clem, to an extent, sort of. But that was only the undercard to what the Cincinnati Inquirer called a fierce bodily assault on the judge of play. With two outs and Jack Fournier at the plate again, this is after the Wingo ejection, and not to repeat myself, but don't you wish you had the kind of job where you got to say things like Wingo ejection? Little did I know I would grow up to be someone who got to say Wingo ejection, and I wonder what the teachers who said I would never amount to anything would have to say about that. Wingo ejection, you bastards. Top of the world, Mrs. Spivberg! So Fournier at the plate, Luque was winding up when, and this is the bird's eye view, Clem stepped out from behind the plate and Luque rushed him. That's all we would have been able to tell were we sitting in the stands at that time, hopefully not throwing bottles, being made of better stuff than that. Now one account says that it was more that Clem came towards Luque and the fight took place right on the mound. Regardless, Luque repeatedly punched Clem in the face. Clem reeled backwards but stayed on his feet and counterattacked. The Cardinals players finally intervened and pulled Luque away. One Reds beat writer made a point of saying that the Cincinnati team was in no hurry to save Clem, and no sooner had Luque been dragged back to the dugout that he broke away and charged Clem again. This time, manager Moran wrestled him back into the dugout to stay. The Inquirer said, the Cincinnati Inquirer, not the National Inquirer, didn't exist yet that I know of, Luque's explanation for the assault was that umpire Clem called him a vile name, which he would not stand for, and also alluded to him belonging to the Negro race. Umpire Clem admitted last night that he had used a bad term in speaking to Luque, but denied flatly that he had added anything about his nationality or had repeated the epithet a second time, as was claimed by Luque. Luque said, I was getting ready to pitch to Fournier when Clem said to me, Go ahead and pitch out there. I made a motion with my hands, which evidently he did not like, for he said, Go on and pitch, adding an epithet which any man would resent. I said to him, What's that you said, Bill? And he repeated it, adding the term N-word to what he had said before and at the same time walking into the diamond towards me. Now, I am neither of the things that Clem called me, and I wouldn't stand for it, so I rushed at him and tried to punish him for his uncalled-for insults. That's all there is to it, 
and I would do it again any number of times under the same sort of provocation. You have to understand, and I will clue you into my process of research, that back in those days, in the great flowering of literacy of the early 20th century, there was an individual newspaper for any man, woman, and child. Now, I do not have easy access to all those papers. Not all of them have been digitized. Not all of the microfilm is accessible, if there is indeed microfilm, but still, with the resources that I have, I am usually able to get multiple perspectives on any given event. One frustration inherent in that is that in the early part of the 20th century, and really right down, oh, towards, I would say, the 60s or so, quotations were not a big part of game stories. Today, if a manager sneezes during a game, 20 people will ask him about it after, and that's good. That helps us. Back then, though, a manager could have run out on the field and shot his own pitcher in the kneecap with an ancient Etruscan blunderbuss, and you wouldn't have had any direct quotations in the paper. Or if you did, they would have been heavily cleaned up and paraphrased, and thus, Dolph Luque, English not his first language, sounds like Steerforth in David Copperfield. Now I am neither the things that Clem called me and I wouldn't stand for it, so I rushed him and tried to punish him for his uncalled-for insults. That's all there is to it, and I would do it again any number of times under the same sorts of provocation. Similarly, here is Bill Clem. It is true that I applied a wrong epithet to Luque. After the pitcher had thrown Fournier out at first, I told him to go ahead and pitch to the batter. He responded by making a motion with his arms and hands, which I took to be expressive of contempt, and signed to incite the crowd to get after me. It was at this time that I used the term to which Luque objected so vigorously. It is not true that I repeated it or that I called him an end. As a matter of fact, I have always stood up for the Cubans, and when players on opposing teams have tried to annoy them by the use of that term, I have always prevented them from doing so. I have never lied in my life or sent in an unfair report on any ball player, and so I will admit that I used a bad term to Luque, for which I am sincerely sorry. As for repeating this term a second time, or calling him any other name, I can only enter a firm denial. Now here's the converse of paraphrasing. Sometimes players will sound more authentic, but it's not accurate either, due to that same racial stereotyping that I talked about before. They will take whatever artifacts of the player's accent existed and exaggerate them. This is particularly true of Latino players, whether from the Caribbean or Mexico, until they sound like speedy bloody Gonzales. So here is how the St. Louis Post-Dispatch quoted Luque after the game, and it probably is closer to accurate than the whole that vulgarian Clem assaulted me with language, that ruffian, that the other papers had. But I'm not positive. Take it with a grain of salt. What Luque supposedly said was, I no stand that anyone he call me a N, and Clem he call it me. I swear to it. Now, Cardinals players and Reds players confirmed Luque's version's events, saying Clem had shouted, Get back in there and pitch, you N. Reds owner Gary Herman made a statement after the fracas, I intend to stand by Luque in this affair. If what the players of both clubs say is true and Clem called him such a name, Luque could hardly be considered a real man unless he showed his resentment. 
National League president John Hadler did levy some punishments. He fined both Luque and Clem a hundred bucks each. Oddly enough, neither of them were suspended, but Wingo was. He was sat for five games. I have no idea why. Possibly having already been ejected during the first Fournier incident, he came back onto the field during the fight with Luque, but that's just a guess on my part, and it's not important. Here's what is. It's strange, isn't it, how a certain subset of Americans object to teaching our kids or teaching ourselves, our adult selves, about how racism was and often is such a pervasive part of this country's history. Wasn't like that, they say, and the gubernatorial election in Virginia seems to have been heavily influenced by that issue. And yet, this one stupid two-syllable word was the worst thing that one man, one white man, could say to another at that place and time. It's why Ty Cobb went into the stands in New York, why Babe Ruth confronted the Giants during the World Series, and why Luque at least claimed to have lost it during this game in 1920. How could it have been such an insult, such a term of degradation, unless the people that it truly referred to were actually held in a state of degradation? It's a paraphrase for, I look at you as a lesser kind of person, a non-human, you know, like those people over there. On last week's show, I talked about the tomahawk chop and how the pictures you draw of other people can hurt them. The lies we tell ourselves degrade us, too. Because if you can't see, and you can't hear, you can't learn, and thus problems are never addressed because it's too painful to recognize them. It's impossible to recognize them. The gulfs widen, divisions become irreparable, and there's no escaping ever from the infinite in it. the show, I am so pleased to be speaking with you again today. I'll give it to you straight, it's a world of bats, balls, and fools, and sometimes you can't even find pants in a pants factory. This week, I am joined by Lincoln Michelle, author of the new baseball science fiction novel, you heard right, The Body Scout. Let me just read to you from the jacket copy. In the future, you can have any body you want, as long as you can afford it. But in a New York ravaged by climate change and repeat pandemics, Kobo is barely scraping by. He scouts the latest in gene-edited talent for big pharma-owned baseball teams, but his own cybernetics are a decade out of date, and twin sister loan sharks are banging down his door. Things couldn't get much worse. Then his brother, Monsanto Met slugger J.J. Zunz, is murdered at home plate. Determined to find the killer, Kobo plunges into a world of genetically modified CEOs, philosophical Neanderthals, and back-alley body modification 
only to quickly find he's in a game far bigger and more corrupt than he imagined. To keep himself together while the world is falling apart, he'll have to navigate a time when both body and soul are sold to the highest bidder. Diamond sharp and savagely wry, The Body Scout is a timely science fiction thriller debut set in an all-too-possible future. I had a lot of fun with this book. It crosses many genres, which is why you'll hear my conversation with Mr. Michelle jump more all over the place. That's a very clunky phrase. Jump all over the place, as usual, but perhaps more than usual. It's a bit like a Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler hardboiled detective story, except that it's funny and also a little scary because certain elements of it do seem fairly plausible, particularly the climate change stuff. Not much more for me to add today. I'll have something up at BP this week about the new, well, they're not called the Veterans Committees anymore, but the Golden Era Committee ballot that's out from the Hall of Fame. There's also an early days ballot. I'll be writing about that the week after. So look for that. I just came across a column by Haywood Brune from 1928 arguing about the designated hitter, that's how long that debate has gone on, saying people are such sadists they enjoy watching pitchers flail as much as they enjoy Babe Ruth connecting. Cheery view of humanity, baseball as the squid game. And oh boy, did Haywood Bruin enjoy seeing Babe Ruth connect. He wrote a whole novel about the babe doing his wife. I mean, it's very hard to read that novel and come to any other conclusion. Again, that's how it was in their family. All right, I'm overdue for a break, and I might need to wash out my brain with soap. When we come back on the other side, I do have one more discussion for you, also about the Hall of Fame, as it turns out. And if you're still with me at that point, well, thank you very much. I'll catch you on the other side. The novel's called The Sunfield, by the way. And here's what he has to say. They call me Cuban Pete. I'm the king of the rumba beat. When I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. Yes, sir, I'm Cuban Pete. I'm the craze of my native street. When I start to dance, everything goes chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. Today, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. Direct TV Stream brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So stop waiting and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Did you know 95% of parents say their girl has made more friends through Girl Scouts? And 89% also say their girl is happier. Have fun with friends and change the world. Troops are forming right now and all girls are invited. Visit gsofct.org to join today. At Vermont Coffee Company, we believe in coffee that's good for both people and the planet. Our coffee is ethically sourced and sustainably slow roasted using 100% renewable energy. Learn more at vermontcoffeecompany.com. As long as we're on the subject of the Hall of Fame, this year's San Francisco Giants convinced me that Frankie Frisch was right, or at least that he wasn't wrong. The Giants won. 107 games that they didn't win the pennant doesn't change the fact that they were a great team. 
a weird team, an old team that overperformed its pants off, but nevertheless a great team. This great team has just one player who has a real chance of being invited to Cooperstown some years from now, catcher Buster Posey. He was also part of the Giants World Series winning 2010, 2012, and 2014 teams, as well as their 2016 wildcard team. He's played in 58 postseason games, all with San Francisco. As you probably heard, Posey retired earlier this week, citing the difficulty of staying healthy, pain he's had to endure, and a desire to spend more time with his wife and children. Now, it's not certain that Posey will get into the Hall of Fame. Although he finishes his career with a 302 batting average, he goes to his rest with only 1,500 hits, 158 home runs, and well less than 1,000 RBIs and runs scored. Now, no one should care about those things. As I've said to you many times, kids, it's just a career service award. There is no quantitative measurement for this. If in your mind a Hall of Famer has to pass a certain threshold of statistical achievement, then we have a very specific Hall of Numbers and not the more elusive, more artful, and I would argue more accurate Hall of Fame. There is no arguing that Posey was not a significant player during his dozen years in the bigs, which spanned 2009 through this year. In addition to all that postseason success, he also has some medals, a Rookie of the Year award, an MVP, a gold glove, a bunch of silver sluggers, does anyone care about those, and seven all-star appearances. He hit 300 a half dozen times in seasons in which he had at least 400 plate appearances. I'm slanting that qualifier in his favor somewhat because he was a catcher, and they typically miss more games than your average bear, but by that standard, Mike Piazza and Bill Dickey had nine 300 seasons, Padrad and Mickey Cochran had eight, and Ernie Lombardi, Ted Simmons, and Posey had six. Just to round out the top ten in this category, Gary Hartnett, Thurman Munson, Joe Maurer, and Yadier Molina did it five times each. I'm glad you mentioned Thurman Munson. Okay, I mentioned him, but we're having a conversation, so let's pretend you mentioned him. Thurman Munson makes for an interesting point of comparison. He had five 300 seasons to Posey's six, but he also played in a tougher offensive period and wasn't visiting Coors Field eight or nine times a year. Posey hit about a tenth of his career home runs at Coors Field, 16 out of 158. Posey had Rookie of the Year and MVP awards. Thurman Munson had Rookie of the Year and MVP awards. Posey made seven All-Star teams. Munson made seven All-Star teams. Posey received one gold glove, Munson three. Posey played on five postseason teams and hit 252 with a 321 on base and a 345 slugging percentage. Munson played on three postseason teams and hit 357 with a 378 on base and a 496 slugging percentage. Posey wraps it up with 44.9 wins above replacement, as baseball reference figures it, and Munson passed away with 46.1. Now, this is not an argument for Munson because he's gone and it doesn't matter. It's more to point out how arbitrary these things are. Munson died with all those qualifications, but only 1,558 hits, 113 home runs, and like Posey, nowhere near 1,000 RBIs or runs scored. And I have no idea why it matters that he didn't. I have no idea why it would matter if Posey didn't. Both of them had careers that were chock full of accomplishment 
they were beloved in their times, they really had no more worlds to conquer. And to expect them to have, or to ask for them, to have kept playing on, to punish Munson for crashing his plane, is kind of ridiculous. Who cares whether they got in another 300 or 400 games, again, whether because in an alternative universe Munson lived or Posey said, screw you, kids, I'm not going to be a dad to you. Not when there's still one more baseball Annie in Cleveland I haven't slept with, I won't. You know, as part of that BP article I was just referencing about the golden era, or golden days, excuse me, ballot for the Hall of Fame. What a terrible name, by the way, golden days. Who decides what's a golden day and what's not? Well, Pirates manager Danny Murtaugh is on that ballot. and. Danny Murtaugh was a lifetime baseball man. He played second base in the majors, went directly into coaching, and because his health was bad, he alternated four managerial stints for the Pirates with a variety of front office assignments. He stepped away for good in October 1976. He finished that season with the Pirates, and he said, In my younger years, I don't think I spent enough time with my children. I'm going to kind of make up for it with my grandchildren. He dropped dead two months later. So, for any baseball writer who has a vote to turn around and say to Buster Posey, Sorry, you owe me another 300 runs scored. You owe me another 50 home runs. You owe me one more ring before you get to have a career service award. Shut up. Who the hell are you to say that to anyone? You know, Bob, we would have given you the Pulitzer Prize for this article, but it's not enough words. Make it longer, Bob. As you know, Frankie Frisch, the Fordham Flash, was a player with the Giants and Cardinals, and then a longtime manager and broadcaster. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame quite properly in 1947. They did make him wait 10 years, even though he was an acknowledged star, a former MVP, played in eight World Series, four with the Giants, four with the Cardinals. He managed one of those Cardinals teams as well. Years later, he got involved with the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee and somehow came to dominate it. During that time, with only slight hyperbole, the Veterans Committee inducted everyone Frankie Frisch had ever known in his life. We'll never know how close they came to inducting Cookie Cucurulo, a fringe lefty on some of the Pirates teams Frisch managed, but that's almost how extreme it was. I mean... As I just said to you, I advocate for a very loose and liberal definition of fame, but I draw the line at Cookie Cucarulo of West Orange, New Jersey. I've been to West Orange many, many times. If you're in the neighborhood, check out the Thomas Edison Historic Site and also the Turtleback Zoo. Fresh era inductees include some of the weaker Hall of Famers, at least on a statistical basis. They included Giant shortstop Dave Beauty Bancroft, Giants outfielder Ross Youngs, another player who died mid-career, Giants first baseman George High Pockets Kelly, see, I told you we'd get back to him, Cardinals outfielder Chick Hafey, and Cardinals pitcher Pop Haynes, who I also mentioned in passing earlier. Frisch was added to the Veterans Committee in 1967, the year it voted in Pirates outfielder Lloyd Wayner, one of the weakest statistical selections in the whole pile of plaques. I'm not sure if he voted on that one or not, but he was definitely around for outfielders Kai Kai Kyler and Earl Coombs and pitchers Rube Marquard and Stan Kovaleski. All really good players, but not necessarily elite. Frisch crashed his car on the way back from the 1973 vote, and 
Unfortunately, that was the end of his days, but the committee rolled on without him for the rest of the 1970s, adding Cardinals first baseman Sonny Jim Bottomley, pitcher Addie Joss, our third dead in mid-career guy today, and one who didn't even pitch the requisite 10 years. The rules don't matter when you don't want them to. Giants third baseman Freddie Lindstrom and outfielder Hack Wilson, some of whose most famous plays or misplays revolve around his being drunk or hungover. To be honest about it, veterans' committee selections have always been random, whether Frisch was there or not. Again, it's a career service award, a gold watch for showing up or doing some nice things, so it doesn't matter at all who does or doesn't get elected. History is different, and it requires your engagement, not just a plaque or a player being served to you on a plaque. And to the extent that the Hall of Fame is about history, the museum at the Hall of Fame can handle that better than the gallery can. Having said that, as I said at the outset, I don't think Frankie Frisch's point of view, whatever his motives, were incorrect. I think that they serve history more than they dilute it. And it was Buster Posey's retirement that made me realize it, or at least consider the possibility. The New York Giants were a great team in the early 1920s and again in the 1930s. They won four consecutive pennants from 1921 through 1924, beating the Yankees in the World Series the first two tries and losing to the Yankees and then the Senators the last two times. Their best position players during those years were in order, and I'm going by wins above replacement again here, Frisch himself, Beauty Bancroft, Ross Youngs, and High Pockets Kelly. Their best pitchers were Art Neff, Hugh McQuillan, Jesse Barnes, Shufflin' Phil Douglas, who is ineligible, having been banned for life, and Fred Tony, And yes, Frisch is in the Hall of Fame sort of representing that team, but it seems wrong to me, worse it seems inaccurate, to say that he should have been there all by himself, that he was somehow the only great aspect of a great team. I would like to argue that greatness isn't just individual, but contextual. These weren't Ruth-level, Trout-level players. Together, they made something special that elevated all of them. And to say, well, John McGraw's in, he was the manager, he created that team, he is a fair representative of that team. But we know more about managers now. They do not swing the bats. They do not make the pitches. Those players made him great, not the other way around. And Trout is a great argument, actually, Mike Trout, not Steve Trout or Dizzy Trout, for what I'm, I'm trying to say, what is a trout in the hand worth if you don't have a lineup and a pitching staff? About as much as Wally Berger was worth to the 1935 Braves. Individually, quite a bit. Collectively, he might as well not exist. In 1999, this is kind of a parenthetical, but you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this. It's, it's not. It's, it's on target. In 1999, the director Mike Lee made a film I really love to think about, Topsy Turvy. It's about the making of Gilbert and Sullivan's 1885 comedic light opera, The Mikado. Now, I happen to enjoy Gilbert and Sullivan quite a bit. I love the wordplay of Gilbert, but that's not why I love the movie and love thinking about it. It helps that it has a terrific cast, including Jim Broadbent as Gilbert, Timothy Spall as one of the leading actors, Leslie Manville as Gilbert's neglected wife, Kevin McKidd, Shirley Henderson, although that's fun too. Rather, it's that all the people involved are depicted as being massively flawed in one way or another. They're venal and ignorant and they're mad at themselves and each other, yet somehow 
they get past all that just barely and cooperate in the making of something beautiful, which is very successful and in itself a lot of fun and is still being performed almost 140 years later. About 15 years later, Lee made another film on the same theme with Timothy Spall, Mr. Turner. British artist J.M.W. Turner was the subject that time. His life spanned from the late 18th to the middle 19th century, and Turner's paintings are amazing. He himself was also amazing, but not always in positive ways. That idea gives me a lot of hope that I might someday accomplish something of value, despite my many flaws and blemishes. But what I'm asking is, why don't we look at baseball teams the way Lee looked at the Mikado as collective endeavors rather than the product of a star here or a star there with a bunch of other guys just being along for the ride? If you think about it, there's nothing about that proposition that makes sense. The gallery does a slightly better job of telling the story of the next great or at least very good Giants team Beginning in 1933, right after John McCraw's retirement, the Giants won over 90 games a year for five straight years. They won three pennants in those seasons, beating the Senators in the World Series in 1933, and then losing to the Yankees in 1936 and 1937. Those were the young Joe DiMaggio, old Lou Gehrig years. The best players on that version of the Giants included Mel Ott, Bill Terry, Dick Bartell, Rowdy Richard, and JoJo Moore. The best pitchers were Carl Hubble, Hal Shoemaker, not Hal Shoemaker, Hal Schumacher. He didn't make the shoes, he only mocked them. <laughs> Ugly shoes, Lauren. Fat Freddie Fitzsimmons and Cliff Melton. Ott, Terry, and Hubble are in. We haven't yet mentioned shortstop Travis Jackson. He falls between two chairs. The lifelong resident of Arkansas is frequently cited as a weak Hall of Famer. He was a teenager in 1922 and 1923 and barely contributed to those World Series teams. He started getting good in 1924, but then he had his best years in the late 1920s when the Giants mostly weren't bad, but they had temporarily taken a backseat to the Cardinals, Cubs, and Pirates. By the time the club picked up again in the 1930s, he was in a phase where he was constantly getting injured and was pushed off of shortstop in favor of Bartel, and so I don't exactly know what to do with him. He doesn't really fit this rubric that I'm trying to establish here. He's just in because he's in on his own merits. And as I said earlier about not asking a player to give you more, he was a pretty good player. He wasn't a great player, but by the standards of shortstop from 1922 through 1936, and maybe even up to when he was inducted in 1982, he looked pretty good and had a number of excellent seasons. There's a song called Dayenu, which is traditionally sung at Passover, and the lyrics approximately are, if the Lord had only brought us out of Egypt and hadn't done anything else, it would have been enough. Had he given us the Torah and not done anything else, it would have been enough. Had he given us dumpy used cars instead of new Cadillacs, it would have been enough. And I feel like that's an appropriate song for this kind of discussion. Really, he gave us a half dozen great seasons by Travis Jackson, strong seasons, season no shortstop should ever apologize for. Honest, it's enough. And really, if you go asking for more, he might hit the smite button. That's not in the lyrics. That's my addition. My form of theology doesn't have to be yours. Now, 
let's look at those Cardinals teams from roughly the same period. Branch Rickey finally got the Cardinals to their first modern pennant in 1926, and they went back to the big dance in 1928, 1930, 1931, and 1934. Two of those pennant winners were managed by Gabby Street, one each by Rogers Hornsby, Bill McKechnie, and Mr. Frisch himself. They won three of the five World Series, beating the Yankees in 1926, the A's in 1931, and the Tigers in 1934. Now, obviously, teams go through a lot of changes over eight years, especially when they're run by the restless Mr. Ricky. That sounds like a Patricia Highsmith novel, doesn't it? But there was some continuity. That team's best position players were Mr. Frisch, F.A. Chick, that is, Jim Bottomley, Ripper Collins, Taylor Douthat, and Pepper Martin. There were some other big names in there. Roger Hornsby exited early after becoming repulsive to the owner. Ducky Medwick arrived towards the end of the pennant run. Rabbit Moranville played short for the 1928 team. The best pitchers were Dizzy Dean, Pop Haynes, Bill Hallahan, Pete Alexander, Sill Johnson, and Bill Schurdel. I always want to say Bill Sherbert, or maybe Bill Strudel. Can you tell dessert is on my mind? So, in terms of, quote, acceptable Hall of Famers, and you might argue that Dizzy Dean isn't one of them, but we'll count them. You've got Dean, you've got Frankie Frisch, and to a lesser extent, Pete Alexander. He's in for a lot of reasons. Ricky, too, is in also for a lot of reasons. So is that sufficient to tell the story? Or is it more accurate to say that Hafey and Bottomley help complete the picture of what happened? Again, I'm not telling you. I'm asking. Now let's return to Buster Posey and the Giants. Let's zoom in on the period. The team went to the postseason every other year, 2010 through 2016. The top position players were Posey, Brandon Crawford, Brandon Belt, Pablo Sandoval, Hunter Pence. The pitchers, the top ones, were Madison Bumgarner, Matt Cain, Santiago Casillas, Sergio Romo, and Johnny Cueto. Tim Lincecum was still there, but the fun was already coming to an end by the time they got good. The Posey-era Giants won three World Series. That's kind of a big thing, and yet, barring a Bumgarner comeback, or an unlikely run of more great seasons from Crawford as he enters his late 30s, Posey is the only player likely to come within a light year of getting a plaque. So, those three championships, he was the only part of a special team who was special. I guess you can accept that. I don't, but fine. Again, I think greatness is contextual. We could keep playing this game. Again, it's not really about who should have a plaque, but about how reductive the idea of the Hall of Fame gallery is. How about the Yankees teams of 1976 through 1981? Four pennants, three 100-win seasons, two championships. Reggie is in, but he's in for a lot of different reasons. Dave Winfield only showed up for 1981 and was super miserable in that World Series, but he's in. Goose Gossage, I guess he should count. He's in for a lot of reasons, too. But Willie Randolph? No. Greg Nettles? No. Ron Guidry? No. Tommy John? No. Catfish Hunter's in, but he was just barely hanging on by the time these teams got going. If we could think about value in more ways than one, you might induct whole rosters, have plaques for the best teams. And that brings us back to Buster Posey. You know what Ralph Waldo Emerson said. He said, ah, the soup is too hot. Actually, I don't know that he said that. I assume everyone says that at least once in their life. Actually, he said, heartily know when half-gods go, the gods arrive. 
that's actually an argument against what I've been saying. It's a valuable thought and a useful one, but it's too late for that in terms of the Hall of Fame gallery. I'm saying think about it in a different way, because it's hard to tell the difference between false gods and half gods and god gods. What he actually said was, pass in, pass in, the angels say, into the upper doors, nor count compartments of the floors, but mount to paradise by the stairways of surprise. That says it better than the bit about foolish consistency, so we'll let it go at that. I'll be right back with Lincoln Michelle, the author of The Body Scout. Today, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. Direct TV Stream brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So stop waiting and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. At Vermont Coffee Company, we believe in coffee that's good for both people and the planet. Our coffee is ethically sourced and sustainably slow-roasted using 100% renewable energy. Learn more at vermontcoffeecompany.com. At Vermont Coffee Company, we believe in coffee that's good for both people and the planet. Our coffee is ethically sourced and sustainably slow-roasted using 100% renewable energy. Learn more at vermontcoffeecompany.com. Next guest is the author of the short story collection Upright Beasts, the co-editor of two anthologies of very short stories, and most recently, the cross of science fiction, noir, and body horror, oh, and baseball, that is The Body Scout. He's Lincoln Michelle. How are you, Lincoln? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Congratulations on the book. It's gotten tremendous notices and they're all justified. You juggle, as I just uh, alluded to, a great many genres at one time, and it really is kind of kind of a, a really accomplished bit of writing in that sense. There are so many ideas on every page. It is so packed, and yet it moves. And I wonder if that was something that you were concerned about, because at no point do you say stop for a thousand words to talk about, say, the backstory behind the Neanderthal revival. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that was something that, well, first of all, thank you. That That's very nice to hear. And certainly all of that is what I was, you know, hoping for. And certainly when I was writing like these kind of different genres, you know, both the, I don't know if you want to call baseball books a genre, but there's certainly like a literary tradition there, that and noir and science fiction and body horror were all things like in my mind that I was kind of pulling the different elements of the story out of. But I'm very glad to hear you think it it moves well. You know, I come from a more uh, quote unquote literary fiction background and, you know, more where I'm used to like writing stories about sad people in bars, you know, like <laughs> grandmas with cancer and that kind of stuff. So I had to kind of teach myself how to write plot when I was I was writing this novel. And so I didn't know if it was really going to work or not. 
But I think the other thing, when you brought up the backstory, that is something that was more in there in like drafts, and I had to kind of remove and pull out so that it didn't get bogged down. Well, you have to trust the reader, right? I mean, the the characters in this novel, and, and we'll get to sort of the jumping off part of the story in a minute. And I also want to ask you about plot and literary fiction, actually, now that you bring that up. But the characters accept that this world is real. They're living in it. And in in actual life, we don't often stop and say, you know, it's really funny that I drive a car instead of ride a horse. People used to ride horses and now they have car. I mean, that's not wouldn't be news to a, a person living in our contemporary world. So why should the characters in a science fiction novel constantly step backwards and kind of, of put in context the things that they're experiencing? Well, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, one of those things that I always find funny in science fiction along those lines is when, you know, characters, you know, they pull out their whatever, their electric fork or something. That's not a really good example. But, you know, they're like, I pulled out my like Magno Wiz 5000 fork or something. And I'm like, well, if this is like something everyone has in regular life, you don't really refer to it by the like the official brand name, right? So, you know, in my book, the characters have some kind of device that's like a future cell phone, but they just call it screens. They don't, you know, it's not spelled out by the name. And yeah, I think I tried to have that kind of natural way that we we talk about the world. You know, we're we're aware of the brands and the, you know, I know what kind of cell phone I have. I think it's a Samsung Galaxy something or other, (laughs) but I don't call it that, right? I just call it my phone. I don't know if he still does it, but Stephen King used to make a point of calling out the brand names of everything. Yeah, well, he he has. A, I, I like Stephen King a lot, but I know he's he's really into pop culture references and, and and talks about how he likes to put them in. And I guess that goes along with that. I'm also a science fiction fan myself, but not a big Doctor Who person. I feel like Doctor Who has a power fork. Actually, I could be wrong about that. He is a a screwdriver, a oh, sonic screwdriver. a sonic screwdriver. All right, all right, we were close. So to to get to the jumping off point of the novel, to introduce it organically. If we posit a future in which extreme body modification has come to baseball, if scouts were therefore tasked to acquire promising biochemists in the same way they currently acquire promising athletes, and if in that world one of the game's most prominent stars was to spontaneously suffer a grotesque death while hitting in a key game, it would have to happen to the Mets, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the Mets felt pretty natural to use for that. <laughs> it would have to happen. It feels like it could happen to them now. I mean, we live in in, in our world. Yenis Cespedes, uh, if I recall correctly, fell off a horse and was devoured by a pack of hyenas or something like that. I mean, was it always the Mets? Did you always intend? And, and was that a comment on their Metsness? Yeah, you know, they came to me early that way. I'm from Virginia, and I didn't grow up with any kind of baseball allegiance. And when when I moved to New York, I, you know, decided, well, no, I should say no sports allegiances at all, really, because Virginia is like the largest state by population without any professional sports teams. And when when I was there, the, you know, the Nationals weren't even in D.C., they, I think they came to DC my senior year of college. Anyway, so I didn't have a teams growing up. So when I when I moved to New York City, I, I decided to just adopt all New York City sports teams since I and so the Mets uh you know, I I, I kinda like the Yankees too. They've been really fun in, in recent years, but the Mets feel like, you know, a more fun team to root for, even if it's because they just constantly break your heart and always mess things up. 
I wanted to ask about their owners too, the Monsanto Mets. Teams are owned by Big Pharma in this universe, which, as we'll get to, makes a whole lot of sense. But I kept wondering, Monsanto is defunct, right? You you even referenced this, that it was it was acquired by Bayer maybe four or five years ago. And I'm I'm assuming that that you don't have the the GlaxoSmithKline Mets or something because this was something that you could use that was very close to something that was a chemical com- company that exists in our world, but they could no longer say accuse you of infringing on their their trademarks or anything. You know, I think I did have a GlaxoKleinSmith Celtics team in there at one point, but uh, <laughs> they got they got cut. No, you know, honestly, it was just that I started the book a couple of years ago and named them the Monsanto Mets. And then when Monsanto got bought, I was just like, ugh, that's annoying. But then I I just was like, oh, I can, you know, this is science fiction. I can pretend the brand gets revived. You know, that happens. I loved your Neanderthals, by the way. And earlier this year, I read Rebecca Rag Sykes' book, Kindred, on the Neanderthals and, and came away appreciating the complexity of them and their world. So it seemed right that your Neanderthals were pretty resentful of the way they'd been treated. Simultaneously, though, she does show that they practiced a little bit of cannibalism, maybe funerary cannibalism. It's not really clear on that. So I kept wanting your your smug Neanderthals to say like, well, OK, we ate some people. <laughs> well, you know, I haven't I haven't read about that, although I certainly believe it. Although I also imagine that, you know, there's some certainly ritual killings have existed in, in our past, too. But, you know, my Neanderthals, you know, part of them is that they're revived without, well, they're revived in a sci-fi context where they're raised by humans, right? There's no Neanderthals around to teach them, like, true Neanderthal culture. So part of their disconnect from the world is that they only have this kind of fake culture imposed on them. You know, they only have the stereotypes of Neanderthalism to go by or push up against. No, that's a a good point point. And that that is raised really beautifully in the book towards the end when one of them talks about a a saber tooth that would be born into our world would not have any sense of its its saber toothness. And and just in case you you get around to this, I don't know if you'll be writing any more Neanderthals in the future. But if you read that book, it's very strange because the you, you know, the gist of it is that, hey, you know, the Neanderthals, they seem to have had a certain amount of artwork. They seem to have had a certain amount of culture and family units and, and we denigrate them and, and we, we pretend that they're dumb and maybe we should really reconsider that. And oh, by the way, when we look at burial sites, oddly enough, there are knife marks on some of the bones and maybe the odd teeth mark. And it kind of suggests that someone filleted this Neanderthal before they were put in the ground. Well, and then, I mean, the other thing with Neanderthals is that, you know, we have a lot of Neanderthal DNA in us, right? Especially right. especially Europeans, I think. So I'm, I know my father got one of those 23andMe or one of those tests recently, <laughs> and we, I think we came out like 5% Neanderthal, which he was excited about. Well, so they might accept you as being a legitimate person to write about them, should any come along. If they come back, I'm I'm hopefully in the clear. So you've talked elsewhere about how stimulating to a story it can be to cross genre elements. And noir and science fiction isn't that big a leap. It's been done many times before. And ditto science fiction and body horror. But all of those things in baseball is kind of a new mix. Did this come to you as a baseball story from the outset? Yeah, it really did. I don't, you know, for me... I definitely was thinking about these kind of larger questions of a future with more body modification and gene editing and the kind of stuff that seems like it's coming down the line, right? Like I'm not, you know, I might be writing a kind of hyperbolized 
version of the future, but you know, a lot of the stuff is in the works, right? And I was thinking about that and a lot of the issues that came up with sports in that context, just, I don't know, it just was animating to me. And that seemed like a way into the conversation. And yeah, baseball was always the sport I had in mind. I think probably for two reasons. I think on one hand, baseball does have this really interesting literary history that I like. You know, there's like a lot of great baseball novels and a lot of great baseball in the culture in general. You know, I... I can say that I was influenced by baseball novels, but honestly, probably more influenced by baseball appearances on Seinfeld or like the Homer at <laughs> the Bad episode of The Simpsons. You know, I would I grew up in that, that time, and, but at the same time, right? I grew up in the '90s in the like baseball steroid era when these kind of questions were in a you know somewhat different context, but talked about a lot, right? All those debates about what counts as sport and like when when is too much chemistry destroying a sport and you know is it just about human achievement and and all of those kind of questions were interesting to me when I was kind of just philosophically or whatever in when I was a teenager and they kind of stayed in my mind when I was writing this book well you could definitely sense that that this was kind of in the in the background something that you had absorbed and there's a kind of not always foregrounded but ongoing in the book kind of a conflict between those people who think that what used to be called juicing, right? That that a, a biochemical improvement to the body is superior to a mechanical or, or a cybernetic one. And including your main character, they're derided as oilers, people who instead of getting their, their 100 mile an hour fastball out of a bottle, they get it by having a machine grafted to their body. And it seems to me as someone who was very immersed in that era myself, that it's kind of a continuation of that argument where we say, well, a certain level of, of drugs are okay. Like a, a player can drink all the caffeine that he wants to. I mean, Joe DiMaggio during his 56 game hitting streak was down in coffee by the bucket, not to mention nicotine. He was off in the dugout or on the ramp chain smoking cigarettes. And we say, all right, that's all right. But if we say, well, you take a stimulant like an amphetamine, as opposed to caffeine or nicotine, no, now we're going to suspend you. And it seemed like in the the conflict between pharmaceutically altered ballplayers and mechanically altered ones, you were exploring that same sort of hypocritical dichotomy. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's, they are really fraught and interesting questions, right? I mean, mm -hmm. even now it's like, you know, I'm not an expert on the rules, but things that if you get injured, you're allowed a certain level of HGH and, and other things to recover from injury. But at some point, it stops counting as recovering from injury and counts as an unfair advantage. And yeah, it's just a tricky line, right? I, I think that everything you said there is, is quite true. I think the other thing I was also thinking about was something like the XFL. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Where, where like, you know, people are always kind of trying to make sports more exciting and more extreme. And at some point that stops being interesting because it's just like too, too over the top. And so the, the cyborg baseball league was also kind of a little bit of a commentary on that. Like at some point you go too far for, for span for fans. Right. Because the, the constraints to the game are what make the game, right? If it's, you know, everyone, this is sort of seeped into the culture to talk about Calvin ball, right? Which was the, the version of baseball and Calvin and Hobbes where the rules were whatever you said they were at any given moment, but that game would be no fun. And in a sense that is, I, I mean, what you have in the book is baseball, right? But were we to, to actually go into this world where if baseball 
said instead of policing everything, and I mean, right now they're frisking pitchers for spider tack between every inning. Instead of trying to police everything, we'll just police nothing. It is, it, it seemed to me very logical and not a huge leap at all to say that the teams would immediately go into essentially kind of a, a pharmacological arms race. Yeah, well, that that's certainly, yeah, I think that that's, <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah, I mean, it, in the book, they're owned, as you said, by these large pharmaceutical and biotech companies, and that might not be what would happen, at least immediately. But would they invest in that kind of stuff? Would there be R&D? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. And and again, it's it's just where we set the line, and it doesn't seem that different where if you go back 100 years ago, someone like John McGraw said, what, what if we have early reporting to spring training? So we'll stop, start, excuse me, two weeks ahead of everybody else. Maybe we'll be two weeks more limber at the start of the season. Or Branch Rickey saying, hey, let's put everyone in dorms and we'll keep them together and we'll make sure that they all eat properly and are going to bed at night and stuff. And again, we'll have that little bit of an advantage. So this isn't that different, really. It's just that as with so many other things, and this seemed like a comment on our world too, it shifts things in a really aggressive way to whoever has the financial advantage. Yeah, I mean, that's probably another reason that baseball was on my mind is, you know, the, the financial differences between teams are is more stark there than than basketball or football, obviously. Yeah, I think that's quite right. I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I think I, I don't know that those differences are that stark. I think they're better at claiming that they're that stark. I mean, we don't know what any team's finances are exactly. I mean, the one thing that you had in the in the book that made sense is that these companies are publicly traded and they are promoting these teams so that if they win, people will buy more Monsanto products or more Pyramid was the other team, uh, main team in the book, buy more of their products. In, in baseball, we don't really know. I said after the, the Braves won the World Series last night, I said on Twitter, congratulations to Liberty Media on being able to raise rents at the battery because that's that's the real estate development that the Braves anchor for them. But I'm not sure that that the Braves are all that important to it. So it's, again, I wasn't even thinking about about the book at that point. But again, you're actually very close to reality in a scary way. One of the funny ways that I, I found out the book was closer to reality than I I knew, and and you're probably familiar with this, but I was I was telling some friend about the book, and he was and about the way that there's these kind of rival billionaires and these rival companies that own teams, and he's like, he was like, oh well, you know that there's two rival billionaires in Japan that hate each other, and they both <laughs> have teams that are named after their companies. So there's the the Rakuten Eagles, I think, and the SoftBank Hawks. I might right. have the Hawks and Eagles flip back. I was like, oh, this is one of those things, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, this is a kind of hyperbolized dystopian kind of future. And it's like, well, actually, some of this stuff already exists. There's already billionaires playing sports teams against each other. No, they're a little more upfront about it. Like they have the Nippon ham fighters. And for for years as a kid, I thought, oh, they're they're pigs and they fight. They're ham fighters. But no, they're the Nippon ham fighters. So <laughs> it's right in the pro it's right there in the in the name of the team. <laughs> That's a good team name. It is a very good it it is. I mean, who would not want to be a ham fighter? So you were just talking about how baseball is very amenable to literature. And I, I know you wrote something about that at Lit Hub too. The one thing I find that's really hard as a writer, and maybe I'm just not skilled enough myself, is animating play by play. Maybe because when you take something that is when when you look at it visually is is kind of a, a poetry of movement that you're experiencing very 
very viscerally, excuse me, when you reduce it to like a, a system of, of sequential movements on a page, I feel like a lot of the life drains out of it. I noticed kind of out of professional interest that more than once you made a point of Kobo, your main character being knocked out before he had to give you the entire play-by-play of whatever he was watching. And I wondered if that was intentional. Well, yeah, I think you're right that it's, I think sports are very hard to, to dramatize on the page in that way. I think, you know, it's a little easier in baseball than other sports to the degree that there's more of these kind of start and stop action Mm -hmm. points in which the drama is very, or not the drama, but the stakes are very clear. It's the same in other sports, right? You have some football movie and it comes down to, you know, the final kick, the final field goal attempt or something, or, you know, a soccer, something about soccer will have a lot of set piece kick-ins and stuff. And... You know, that stuff is just easier to render. I mean, on the screen, too. But especially on the page, yeah, the, the, the individual movements of everything is hard to follow. And I think – and it's not that interesting to follow normally, right? If I give you, like, a three-page description of exactly what happens in a play, unless that's, like, very beautifully written, it's probably not going to be the most interesting thing. That may just be the case with human movement in general. I don't know. <laughs> There's this book I really love called this – this is really tangential, but you said that it can we can be tangential. So. Of course. There's this book I really like called uh, – or I haven't read in forever, but I, I quite liked when I read it called On Being Blue by William H. Gass. And it's a kind of essay, a, a book-length essay about all the different connotations of blue. So it'll be like blue blue language, you know, cursing and stuff. And, and um. part of it he talks about sex. And he just has this line in there where he says that – he's like, I posit that a – stroke-by-stroke depiction of sex on the page would be as pointless as a chew-by-chew description of eating a chicken (laughs) wing. (laughs) But there is something, right? Like, you don't want to have a sex scene really be just like a series of this happened and that happened, this movement. And also, you don't really want to read a scene of someone eating that way either. Like, the all the the exact little movements can be, I don't know. It's hard to follow and kind of not that most interesting part. No, you make a great point. And I don't know if they still do this. I, I can't remember who did it. I feel like it was some some group in the UK that would run like a worst sex scene competition for books every year and and would nominate different scenes. And there are some very prominent writers who have when you you read the the excerpts that at least they used to post again, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but even some really good award winning or best-selling writers, people won Booker Prizes and so on, show up on that list and you take it out of context, whatever the sex scene is, and it sounds horrible. What it is, I think, as we were talking, I was thinking about John Updike's famous, I think it was the New Yorker essay, Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu about Ted Williams hitting his home run and exiting. What makes that work is not the the rendering of the the physical home run, it's the rendering of the emotions surrounding the home run. So in a way, almost we try to be specific as writers, but, and, and and I don't flatter myself to put me in your league at all, but we try to be specific, but the real strategy is maybe to talk around it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you're quite right, right? Like fiction is about the character's emotions and the meaning of things more than the exact specific actions, perhaps. But there's also, you know, there's, I mean, just if we're talking about the nitty-gritty of of fiction, you know, there's a near infinite number of details and movements that we can have for any scene, right? Even just me sitting here in this chair, spinning around slightly and waving my hand (laughs) as I talk. 
there's a million details you could put, but you got to pick the ones that are going to have some kind of impact for the reader. Can you get, I guess you can. I, I think I know the answer to this. I mean, you could show character, whether through a character's actions in a sex scene or at home plate or on a pitcher's mount through the actions that you depict. Yes, to- that's totally true, too. Mr. Irving Berlin often emphasizes sin in a charming way. Mr. Coward, we know, wrote a song or two to show sex was here to stay. Richard Rogers, it's true, took a more romantic view of this sly biological urge, but it really was Cole who contrived to make the whole thing merge. He said that Belgians and Greeks do it. Nice young men who sell antiques do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Monkeys, whenever you look, do it. Ali Khan and King Farouk do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Luella Parsons can't quite do it. But she's so highly strung. Girls run this world, and your girl is ready with Girl Scouts. With Girl Scouts, she can be herself, become her best self, and watch her confidence soar. Troops are forming now, and all girls are invited. Visit gsofct.org to join today. At Vermont Coffee Company, we believe in coffee that's good for both people and the planet. Our coffee is ethically sourced and sustainably slow-roasted using 100% renewable energy. Learn more at vermontcoffeecompany.com. I think where it gets hard with sports is maybe just like the number of players on the field, right? You tend to have your kind of one character you're following in a scene, but if you're giving the full details of a of an entire inning or something through the view of like everything that happens for every player, it's maybe just a bit harder. Well, I mean, this is true in, in your book too, when you talked about the Mets team that is playing in the world series, you probably named, you didn't name 25 guys, definitely. And you didn't name, I don't think five guys. And so if someone was going to be really kind of anal about the depiction of a baseball team, it would be, I mean, I I wouldn't do this to you in real life, but I wouldn't be like, so, okay, in that play, where was the shortstop? You never mentioned the shortstop. And it's extraneous. Yeah, and it's kind of like, that was another thing that I, I did have. Like, I, I wrote up, you know, <laughs> team name, the the rosters of all the teams, and or at least the main teams. And I wrote up all the teams in the entire league. That's another thing. I think there's maybe like five teams in the league that are mentioned. Casually, I didn't mention all 30. But it's the kind of thing that just felt like too many of those details bogged down the story. So, so I guess I was trying to say it's similar to when you were asking me about, you know, the history of Neanderthal cloning or some of these other things. Some of them I wrote and just had to take out in the revision process. Is that, as a writer, still useful to you in the same way that a method actor will think about the entire lifetime of their character leading up to the moment that they're at the the gunfight at the OK Corral or or blowing up the space station, whatever it is that they're doing, none of that makes it onto the screen, but it it somehow helps them center what they're doing. Yeah, I think it gets you into the world for sure. You know, get into the kind of tone. You know, in my book, a kind of somewhat satirical 
hyperbolized future tone. Yeah, I think it helps with that. I also had this idea when I was first writing it that I would have some appendixes in the back that would list all of this because I just <laughs> thought it was fun. So that's another reason that I wrote it all out, but then decided that that was maybe only fun for me. Maybe for your website, the uh, the, the DVD director's commentary, essentially. Yeah, they don't really have director's cuts for novels. <laughs> So I, I imagine someone will think of that at some point. Amazon will, will get people to do that for, you know, mo- most likely someone like George R. R. Martin. You know, the, the thing is, though, I've been joking with my wife recently because she's a big science fiction reader. And obviously a lot of people are talking about Dune and Dune is widely considered a classic of science fiction. And when I first tried to read it, I was probably about 12, 13, too young. And I said, nope, no, no glossaries, not doing anything that requires a, a glossary. I, it's, it's too much like homework. And even the movie, the initial movie, the original movie, had the, the David Lynch movie, had a glossary at the outset. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of the rare people who really likes the David Lynch movie, <laughs> although I, I do acknowledge it's a total mess. You know, there's so many problems with it, but I, there's just some beautifully weird visuals in there, which is not a surprise for Lynch, I guess. No. I like the new movie, too, and it's definitely more of a well-rendered kind of blockbuster movie. You know, it, it has the arcs and the there's not too it doesn't get too bogged down in the details, which Lynch's does with all the voiceover. But the kind of really powerful images in Lynch's movie, I, I feel like I still think about decades later. You know, Lynch's actually leads me to the, the question about plot that I threatened before, because some of Lynch's movies, they take abrupt jumps and you're, you're not feeling very centered at all, as opposed to a more traditional story that does have sort of a strong plot mechanic. And of course, a, a noir detective story. And, and again, like making a scout essentially kind of a Humphrey Bogart or Raymond Chandler kind of character is a brilliant insight because it is what they are, or, or at least classically what they were. And it's amazing to me that, that I mean, it's, it's just a great, great idea. And, and it I noticed very seamlessly that Kobo has gone from, I mean, he keeps referring to the case. I mean, it, it's not subtle that he has transformed from a scout into a detective in, in the book. But but the point is, it, it does have a strong plot mechanic. And you alluded to before how, like, if you take an, an MFA, plot is not something or plot mechanics or something that, that's not heavily, I guess, invested in. And I, I know that this is kind of a trope that literary fiction should not be concerned with plot. And I, again, maybe I'm not well-read enough, but I, I've never really understood how that works or sort of what an example of a plotless novel is. I've read books that would be considered avant-garde or modernist in some way, and yet they still do seem to have some through line. Yeah, th- that's a good question. I mean, in terms of like the MFA world, you know, there is sometimes this kind of denigration of plot in some kind of literary critic academic circle sometimes, but I think it's actually more a rather blunt function of the way MFAs work, which is that you have a small group of people that get together and they discuss a short story. You know, you, you turn in a short story to read because there's just not time to read someone's entire novel every week, right? And the focus on the short story is kind of necessarily less focus on plot because stories aren't plotted in the same way, at least. I think that there are a lot of, to me, books that I would call more or less plotless, right? I think it's probably true that nothing can have no plot. And I love a lot of those books. Mm -hmm. I think one that stands out to me is, I really like this book called The Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. Sure, I've read some Nicholson Baker. 
Yeah, so he has this one called The Mezzanine, which which I would recommend if it sounds interesting to you. And it's about this guy. The plot of the book, or at least the physical action of the book, is that a man, a kind of boring, you know, worker, average, everyman Joe kind of person, comes back from lunch and walks across the main floor of the office building and takes an escalator up to the mezzanine level. And that's it, right? So then the entire actual book unspools in his weird, funny thoughts as he's riding this escalator. So he'll see someone's shoelaces are untied and then goes on a 50-page rant about shoelaces. Things like that. It's a really fun book. I mean, Nicholson, if you've read him before, you know, he can be very funny. Another book that I think of as kind of plotless as that I really love is Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, which is... Yes, I love that book. Right, so, you know, it's mostly just just poetic descriptions of invented cities, right? So those are kind of things can exist. But a lot of literary fiction is, especially these days, very plotted, I think. You know, most of the books that are competing for the National Book Award or the Pulitzer are as plotted as, you know, classic noir novels at this point. But I think that wasn't maybe always the case. I've not, I've, I read the Fermata, I read Vox, I, I might have read another one. I don't, I have not read the Mezzanine. But my question would be, and and this is a very like lit 101 question or writing 101 question, but I would ask, is is the main character someone who goes through a change, even in the process of just walking in that distance and having those ruminations? Because, I mean, if you think about it, like it doesn't, it's not that different from James Thurber writing The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And Walter Mitty, I don't think, ever leaves his car or something in, in the course of the story, but he's going all these exotic places and jumping out of airplanes and so on as he escapes from this very dreary, excuse me, dreary life that he has. So, I mean, and I, and I don't know if, if in that short story, Mitty changes so much as, as we learn the reality of, of his life and feel bad for him. It's not quite the same mechanic, but that's what I wonder if, like, if something changes, then it does have plot. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think it's also, you know, somewhat impossible to truly separate all these elements, right? The, you know, mm-hmm. the character and the the plot and the style, they're all like intermingled. But maybe what it is is that you could you could change the order of a lot of the pages and passages and chapters in a book like The Mezzanine or Invisible Cities and the story would read functionally the same. Whereas if you change the chapters in, you know, the big sleep or something, it would just become incoherent. Not in the big sleep. <laughs> well, I know that that's not that that it has some famous plot holes in it, right? It does, yes. But by the way, you at one point, and I assume this was kind of an Easter egg. At one point, Kobo says, "I need a big sleep," and I, yeah, the... I thought, yeah, I see you there. I. <laughs> Yeah, that was probably there's there's a lot of little jokes like that. It's a very light and very comic novel in a lot of ways and and there's a, a lot of stuff to kind of chuckle at, but as I was saying, it's not that different from where we are now and the thing for me is so I've been reading this book over the last couple of weeks and I'm reading it during the never-ending reign of Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema and the run up to the elections that we just had the the day before this as we're talking. And I'm putting down the book and and catching the news and Manchin is demanding that we put more coal into the bill. Damn it. Ever more coal. And then I'm reading Kobo walking around the the storm wall around Brooklyn. And it it felt, although it is, I, I wouldn't call the world of the book a dystopia necessarily. It just feels very like 
not a hundred years ago, or excuse me, a hundred years from now, but possibly much sooner than that. I just happened to read this in, in the New Yorker at the same time I was finishing the book, and it's by the Georgetown philosophy professor Olofimi Taiwo, and he wrote, profit and security are reserved for those at the top of the world's hierarchies and are achieved by shifting the risks and burdens towards those at the bottom. Some people get a storm surge barrier and others watch their villages be swallowed by the sea. And that is the outlook of the body scout. So I wondered for you, you let this world gestate in your mind and live in your mind for at least as long as it took you to write the book. And then you, you emerge, whether during the writing of it or after, into this world that is on the same trajectory. And I wonder what effect that had on you. It will definitely like the my kind of genesis of ideas in the book or, or a lot of the things in the book are definitely things that exist right now and that are just, you know, what would it be like on our current trajectory or what's a kind of, I keep on using this word and I feel like now it seems like this crutch I'm using, but hyperbolized version of, of a world. But to give an example, there is, I think that these actually got banned recently, but for a long time in New York City, there were these things that where they when they would build apartment buildings and they had to the, there's a certain amount of subsidized apartments that they would have to have right based on the, right, the laws right. of the city and there was often this thing called uh, the poor door which is that the people who got the subsidized apartments would have like a different entryway they had to go into yep. and would have less amenities and all you know they didn't get everything else that uh, other people got in the buildings. And so in my book, that's kind of hyperbolized into these underground apartments, right? So the subsidized apartments are like literally underground, but it is just kind of an extension of, of what exists. And that was that thing in terms of coming out into the world and being like, Oh, some of the stuff you're writing about <laughs> is happening. It, that was kind of weird. You know, I don't think science fiction is ever really predictions. It's always like about the world, but some things did seem to, kind of come true in, in weird ways. I remember one thing that struck me is that I have this line in the beginning of the book, I think it's in the second chapter, but where there's this kind of smog that's flowing across America and like hits New York. Right. And there's some line about how it's, it floats across America after these fires and stuff. And I almost took that out of the book because I was like, that's probably like unrealistic that it could travel that far all the <laughs> way across the country. And then as as I was in like copy edits for my book or as the book was coming out, New York had its like worst air quality in, you know, a decade or something because of the wildfires in Oregon. And they like that chemical damage had floated all the way across the the whole country. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> this is, we are like in this world. There's a, a line in an old Tom Lehrer song, what they eat for lunch in San Francisco Bay, they drink with dinner at Monterey. There's no escaping it. I can recall and I'm a little older than you are, that when I, I was a kid, Mount St. Helens in Washington erupted, and I'm in New Jersey, actually. And about, I don't know, a week later, you know, we went out and caught ashes out of the air. So it it's all more connected than we like to pretend it is. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I think the quote you were talking about from The New Yorker feels like, I think you said it was The New Yorker. Yes, it was, last week. That feels like really... I don't know. This when we're talking about like climate change and everything that's coming down on us, you know, I see these people who are tweeting things or, or writing articles about how we're going to come up with climate change solutions, but those solutions are always going to be for the people who can afford them, right? And they're not going right. to be solutions for the whole world. And that yeah, that line about some people get the storm wall and some people watch their villages get flooded, that feels very accurate for what's coming. 
it is what you wrote. And I was struck by, in particular, one line, and it it that you wrote that actually dovetails with the baseball stuff, which is, I, I think at one point you said that at the city of New York, at some point just said the subways have been flooded too many times, so we're going to abandon them. Again, like that sounds hyperbolic, but it's just logical after a certain point. And in the same way, if, okay, if every player is juicing at some point, if you can't beat them, join them. And if you're not going to mitigate even, and I was reading about this recently, just the very shape of the streets in New York, which right now are concave. So they funnel the water down into the subway and you need it to run off. I may have that backwards. I'm never good on the whole concave convex thing, but the point being like they need to remediate the very basic shape of the streets. Like this is just something that's coming again. This has a, a noir feel to it. And it definitely, like you said, it alludes to the the big sleep and it, and it has a, a sort of forget it, Jake, it's just Chinatown feel to some of it, which is very welcome. And it's great for those of us who enjoy that kind of thing. But I think in say Chinatown, the stakes are much lower than what either the characters in the book are dealing with or what we deal with in the real world. Because as far as Chinatown, okay, you know, Jack Nicholson doesn't get to go off into the sunset with Faye Dunaway and her sister slash daughter. But for us, it is about whether the villages get swallowed by the ocean. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, definitely my main character has a very kind of cynical outlook and, you know, probably shares my politics in general and also my somewhat lack of hope about where things are going, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I did enjoy just having had some behind the scenes experience with the Yankees that he is terminated rather abruptly by the Yankees. And I, and I felt unfairly at the beginning of the book. It it was a very realistic Yankees dismissal, as I've seen other people experience them close up. Yeah, well, yeah, I think there's a bit of Yankeesness in there and then also a bit of maybe just the general precarious employment of of my generation, you know, as someone who's been an adjunct and such and, and worked lots of freelance jobs and, and just been used to getting kind of the boot. So he's, I guess he's more or less a freelance scout, even in this weird future. Holding hands at midnight neath the starry sky. Nice work if you can get it and you can get it if you try. Strolling with the one more Side side to side Nice work if you can get it And you can get it if you try Rock out to some rock and roll And when you do, make a sandwich that rocks Go with two slices of your favorite bread Pile high with Eckrich Deli Meats And then turn it up to 11 Eckrich, you do you You know, since you brought up the freelance aspect of it, I wanted to ask you this. I've always been taken by something that I heard Neil Gaiman say at a lecture probably almost 20 years ago now. And he said something about how he was concerned that the short story not go the way of poetry. And again, this isn't necessarily my perspective on this stuff, but this was what he happened to say that evening in that. Poetry, as opposed to being something that was consumed in any kind of mass way, was there for aficionados only. And he thought that that was going to happen to the short story. For those of us who have looked back to, say, the 30s and the 40s and even later when there were millions of magazines and, and they all ran fiction, it wasn't just The New Yorker and 
the writer's markets for those things were actually quite massive. And it seems like the barriers to entry were probably much, much lower. It's not like that anymore. And I mean, I know there there are websites and things that, that you can get on, but but you can't necessarily make a living, you know, writing short stories for the slicks as some of these writers did back oh, 50 or 60 or, or 70 years ago. And you've written a lot of short stories. And I assume you do it because you love doing it and you have to do it. I mean, you're called to doing it. Do you find it to be a rewarding thing to do, even in this era where it is hard to get attention on that kind of stuff? Yeah, certainly that's all true. You know, you, you brought up Stephen King before, and I, like many people, like his book on writing that is called yes. On Writing. But I, I always I remember when I read that book the first time, he's he's like complaining about the amount of money he made on some like short story sales when he was starting out. And it's like more money, even not adjusted for inflation than you can normally get now. So yeah, even from like Stephen King's era, it's gotten much worse in terms of payment for short fiction. But yeah, I guess, you know, my attitude has always been that I'm never going <laughs> to the kind of weird fiction that I want to write is probably never going to make me a living on its own. So it's always just kind of been what I'm doing on the side. And, and so what I feel compelled to do or what I feel that I can do uniquely. And yeah, I, I love short stories. I read them all the time. I really enjoy the form, but it's certainly true that it doesn't have nearly the mass appeal of novels. And, you know, you're never going to get an advance for nearly as much for short stories and almost never going to be a bestseller. There's, you know, a few exceptions here and there, but. In fact, you did it in the opposite order, actually. What, what, agents have said to me is that you sell a novel and then the, the publisher will maybe put out a short story collection as kind of a way to keep your brand viable while you work on the next book. But you actually had the short story collection before the Body Scout. Well, yeah, it's definitely true that if you get like a two book deal at a publisher, which I didn't, my, my two books were on different publishers and separated by many years or six years. But if you get a two book deal with a publisher, it's often like they'll kind of tack on a short story collection to publish that for you and, and kind of help maintain your reputation in that way. But yeah, I guess it, you know, I think it used to be the opposite of what you just said, which is that okay. the two book deal used to be that you would put like the story collection. I could be wrong here, but I think 30 years ago or something, the story collection might come out first to give you name recognition within the critical world, right? And within the, the literary world, so that when your novel came out, you'd be more, you'd have more buzz or something. But I think you're correct that that's kind of inverted now. And now if you do the two book deal, they'll, they'll put out the novel first, because that's what's going to sell. And then they put out the story collection after. One of the things that I enjoyed about the Body Scout is that even though you were dealing with some tropes of noir, that the characters did seem real, that, that, Kobo did not just seem like the hard-boiled archetype out of Dashiell Hammett, but he was somebody that had a, a real personality. And I, I was challenged in this way in that, again, I, I've read a whole lot of science fiction, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something. But when I, I think of the books that gave me the most pleasure in the science fiction field, I'm not sure that I came away feeling like it was because the character was that affecting. It was always the the situation or, or the setting. And I, I don't know if, if something comes to mind for you in terms of like a, a, a science fiction novel that or, or even short story that, that really kind of managed to pull off both. Was that something that you were aware of, too, as you worked on this book? Well, 
Yeah, I think that that for a lot of classic science fiction, I definitely agree with you. And some like true classic science fiction, you almost the characters are like almost not even characters. I, I recently read Asimov's Foundation, which right. I'd never read before, um, and I haven't seen the TV show yet. But those those are really not characters. <laughs> they're, no. they're like they're like just vehicles for ideas. And I think probably Asimov, if he was alive, would even say that. But you know, I think a lot of that changed in science fiction to a certain degree in the, you know, what they call the new wave of science fiction in the sixties and seventies, when you have writers like Ursula K. Le Guin and I think Octavia Butler's characters are are often very affecting. My favorite book of hers is probably wild seed, which is kind of this long love story, the love hate story between two characters who kind of can live across millennia. Hmm. And I definitely feel like those characters come across very strongly, but I also agree that, yeah, in a lot of science fiction, yeah, the concepts and the ideas or the, or the world are maybe animating the book more than the characters. I mean, I agree with you about Asimov completely, and, and I've often enjoyed Asimov, but he was great on the high concept, but the, the characters are, are pretty fungible. And I was saying to myself, when I was a kid, what I preferred Ray Bradbury to Isaac Asimov, and then I said to myself, well, wait, he didn't have characters either, really. And what that was was more of a subjective liking sort of the the punchiness and and the twilight zone nature of of Ray Bradbury and and Rod Serling did make a couple of of Ray Bradbury episodes because his work just fits nicely into it it was adapted into EC comics he had that feeling before there was even television but did Ray Bradbury have anybody we'd say like oh this is the guy that we remember from a Ray Bradbury story and I don't think it's true yeah I think you're probably right I mean I think Bradbury is also just an excellent prose writer. Yes. Uh, probably, probably much stronger than, than Asimov. If I, I hope I don't get too much sci-fi <laughs> hate mail for saying that, but, but yeah, Ray Bradbury is just a beautiful writer too. His concepts are fantastic as well. They really are. And you can go back to certain stories that at this point are, I don't know, 70 years old. Right. And I mean, he was first publishing in the 1940s and they still hold up. I think about the tiny assassin sometimes, which is a, I guess a story about postpartum depression in sort of a, a horror setting. And, and he did that at a time no one was talking about that. The fear of your own newborn coming to destroy you was really prescient, for example. It could have been written yesterday. Yeah, I think Bradbury, he's someone who, who holds up very well. When I when I teach, I you know a Bradbury story will still go over very well, which isn't always the case with very old sci-fi writers. What are some short stories that you do offer to students that tank when you don't think they it's something obviously that you find worthy of teaching but what is it that that sort of the youth of today to borrow from Casey Stengel that they don't respond to that you you are surprised by well you know often it actually is what you're you're saying especially if I'm teaching in like an MFA program I sometimes teach a speculative fiction class and so I have students who are there to 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 read horror and sci-fi and fantasy and you know most of what I teach I think goes over pretty well but the stuff that or, you know, hopefully, or I adjust my syllabus <laughs> if it doesn't. But I guess the two things that I, I remember kind of standing out as not going over well are, A, some stories some by kind of hard sci-fi writers that, as you are saying, like don't really invest in the characters and the, the students feel like even if the ideas really grip them, they don't, you know, connect to the story without having that, that character really honed down. And then the other stuff, and this is more just like what I love – you know, I try to make my students love it, but it doesn't go over. It is more kind of surrealist literature, which where there's kind of not enough to hold on to for them. But I kind of <laughs> like that that weird dreaminess of surreal literature. 
I think you have to come into it sort of prepared for it. And that, that kind of goes to the David Lynch thing. I'm thinking of the Mulholland Drive at, at the moment where you just have to be prepared to know that you're going to be sort of bucked off this horse every few minutes. Yeah. And I'm a huge, I love, I love David Lynch. Uh, probably not a surprise if, you, if you've read my book, <laughs> right. but yeah, I totally understand too. If you go into it and don't understand what you're in for, I, I mean, Mulholland Drive is an especially kind of bizarre one for Lynch or for someone who's like not used to his work, because if I remember correctly, it started out as a pilot for a TV show right? and it was going to be like the new Twin Peaks. And then he figured out a way to put an ending on it and make it a movie. But because of that, there's a whole bunch of characters who like just don't recur right. and they're like set up in this big way and then they don't come back. And Lynch always has some stuff like that, but it's like extra present in Mulholland Drive because they were like, you know, they were going to have some long story arc over the season. And they're, right. just, they're just there in one cool scene now. That's exactly right. And I, I mean, I guess it would be fine if you were in, I don't know, maybe even like sort of the three volume Victorian novels didn't do this. I mean, they have more economy than that in that if Dickens introduces a, a character halfway through volume two, he's going to show up somewhere before it's over. Yeah, right. I mean, you kind of build meaning and connection for the reader by recurrence. I mean, a right, pretty right. Ba- basic idea, but it's true. And so when, when when characters don't recur, and especially when they're set up, you know, it's like the old Chekhov's gun thing, right? They're where you need to have, you have a gun in the first act and needs to go off by the end of the third act. And if you have these characters who are set up in this way and then they just kind of disappear or their function totally changes, it's very disorienting. But obviously with Lynch, the disorientation is, you know, totally intentional. So speaking of recurrence, is returning to this world something that you would be interested in future Neanderthal adventures, perhaps, or more Kobo reemerging from where you left him? I mean, I guess you've positioned him now that his next story wouldn't necessarily have to be set in a baseball setting. It could be about anything else. Yeah, I don't have any specific plans to do that, but I like the the idea. And I have, I've started kind of sketching out a possible book, too. And, and taking notes for it. So it's not, not imminent, but I've been kind of working on it. Again, you did this great thing in that it's a, a very lived-in world, but because you had so many ideas on every page that you did not necessarily dwell on, let's say the, the zootech, right, the crypto animals that populate some of this, this novel, that's kind of an off-ramp that can be taken to a whole other plot if one chose to. Yeah, uh, yeah, I definitely agree. And I could a second book would probably involve a lot more of that, kind of those creatures in, infecting the world a bit more. If any other Monsanto Mets want to explode, that's fine. Mets fans are used to it. They're totally ready and prepared for that. In fact, I think they'd be almost disappointed if it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll see. I, I, I hope that I can do another book in this world. The book is The Body Scout. It's available everywhere. It has my recommendation. My guest has been... Lincoln, Michelle Lincoln, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you. This was really fun. I really enjoyed the whole wide-ranging conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Coincidentally, I was going to talk about Ray Bradbury's story, The Million Year Picnic, as part of last week's story, but it didn't make the cut. You can follow Lincoln Michelle on Twitter at TheLincoln. One big word, TheLincoln. As for me, you can follow me at GoStephenGoldman. Why go Stephen Goldman? Well, the Stephen Goldman would be misleading given how many of me are actually out there. You can write us, by which I mean me, 
at infiniteinning at gmail.com. And there's a Facebook group. Go to Facebook. Search on Infinite Inning. Knock. I will let you in. I think they just changed that. You can let yourself in and gain access to pictures, links, and Shanty Hogan's impression of Albert Einstein in America. Should you wish to support the show, and I very much hope you do, please visit patreon.com slash theinfiniteinning. You really do make this show possible. Gear of a rudimentary sort available at teespring.com slash store slash the hyphen infinite inning original soundtrack at casualobservermusic.bandcamp.com. Finally, should you find yourself with what? The proverbial moment to spare. Please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. And if your podcatcher doesn't let you do those things, remember that life is just a bowl of cherries after all. Our theme song, which you are hearing now and have been listening to throughout the episode, was a co-composition of myself and Dr. Rick Mooring, who says, remember, moderation in all things except being drunk, broke, and sloppy. A little of those things is the same as a lot, so you might as well go for it. Well, if I can just remember where I left my keys in this episode before the ice cream man wants his van back, I'll be back next week with more tales and discussion from inside the Infinite Inning. The McDonald's breakfast is too good to speak deal. Sounds a lot like... Mm. <laughs> that. And who wants to chit-chat in the morning when you have McDonald's to eat anyway? Get a sausage McMuffin, sausage burrito, or any size premium roast hot coffee, any two, for $2. Or get a sausage McMuffin with egg, two for $4. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Price and participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with combo meal. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.